Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's podcast, we're discussing the 2013 film Dallas Buyers Club and its depiction of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. The film won three Academy Awards and was nominated for six of them. It stars Matthew McConaughey, Jared Leto, and Jennifer Garner. McConaughey and Leto each won an Academy Award for their performance. Dallas Buyers Club is based on a true story and follows Ron Woodruff, a straight, homophobic cowboy who contracts AIDS. In hospital, Woodruff meets a queer person who also has contracted AIDS named Rayon. The two of them start a business called the Dallas Buyers Club, in which they import and sell medication for HIV and AIDS that have not been approved by the FDA. The AIDS epidemic hit gay and bisexual men and other members of the queer community especially hard, and the movie is an important portrayal of LGBTQ plus history. Today we dig into the history behind this portrayal. How does the U.S. government's response to the AIDS crisis compare to how it was depicted in the film, and how does it compare to places like Canada and the U.K.? How did the queer community respond to the AIDS crisis, and how did queer culture and society change as a result of it? We also chat about the film as an important depiction of the history of transgender and differently gendered people, and what the film does well and poorly in that regard. To discuss all this with me and more, I'm joined by Elio Colavito. Elio is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and an expert in LGBTQ plus history in late 20th century North America. Specifically, their research focuses on the history of transgender mutual aid networks in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast a compatriot of mine from the University of Toronto, Elio Colavito. Elio, thanks for joining me on the podcast. You know, thank you for having me. I'm super stoked to be here to talk about this fantastic movie. I won't get ahead of you. I'll let you do the intro. No, 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 no. That's great. But please, before we talk about the movie, introduce yourself and your research area to the listeners. Yeah, that might, that might be an important thing to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm Elio Colavito. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a PhD candidate, newly minted as a candidate in the Department of Congratulations. History at U of T. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so my research focuses on trans mutual aid from the 1970s to roughly the early 2000s in North America, usually excluding Mexico. I'm sorry to be one of those people. But yeah, I mostly just look at care webs and resource sharing and grassroots activism in trans communities in in Canada and the United States. And sometimes those networks are global and that's that's my shtick. That's a great topic. And do you want to Tell us a little bit about how you decided on that dissertation topic. Yeah, I decided on that dissertation topic out of a need to understand my own life and situation and community in a way. I just had tons of questions about how one might access trans community or trans gender affirming medical care before Google. Hmm. When I started my own transition, I had a really hard time accessing resources and knowing where to go and what to do. And I had one of the most powerful knowledge sharing tools on the planet and human history ever at my fingertips. And so I partially just couldn't fathom what that process looked like before the Internet. And I thought it was really important to understand and know how trans people took care of each other and introduced each other to the community, especially at a time like ours now where we're seeing a lot of trans rights and safety being peeled back in the United States and a very alive and nasty turf movement across the developed world. And so it became really important for me to, in the in the words of my supervisor, 
find technologies for living. And that was kind of how I came about some of the questions that I ask at the core of my dissertation research. Right. Well, it's a really important topic. And I think an area for a lot more work in history generally is LGBTQ history, especially since at least my sense is that, you know, there at least at the university level, there are some classes in history departments on those topics, but queer histories are not very well integrated into classes that are not specialized in that topic. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, I've done some teaching in the American and Canadian survey courses, and there's absolutely nothing inherent in the in the syllabi about LGBTQ plus history. It's either something I've always had to supplement or kind of approach the course instructor and saying, hey, can you like add one thing? And it, it is usually about AIDS. So the fact that we don't get around to it until about the 80s is, is pretty horrible and pretty sad. And it makes today's topic all the more pressing because AIDS is the, it's the thing to talk about for, for a lot of people who don't do queer history. Right, right. Yes, so that leads nicely into the film that we're talking about today, which is Dallas Buyers Club. So for listeners who haven't seen it or maybe saw it when it came out, but forget the plot a little bit, let's give a brief rundown of what the movie is about. So... The movie is set during the mid-1980s in Dallas, Texas, and starts off essentially with Ron Woodruff. He's this gruff, bigoted in every way you can imagine, cowboy type. Right? Yeah. He's, he's, he's homophobic, he's racist, he's sexist, all of that. And he learns that likely through having unprotected sex, he's contracted HIV, and originally... He associates, and, and all his sort of homophobic buddies associate HIV with being like a, a disease sort of just for gay people, mm -hmm. right? And he doesn't take it that seriously, but, you know, he has some medical incidents and stuff. And so he, he gets really into researching, like, the different medical treatments and all that. But he really doesn't want to associate with the queer community at all. Like, he doesn't want to go to their support groups that are mostly for LGBTQ people, etc. And he has a bad experience with the medication that has been, or that is accessible in the United States. It's not even fully approved at the time. And so he essentially gets involved with smuggling other drugs into the United States from, originally from Mexico, uh, drugs that are being produced in other countries and all that. And eventually he realizes that he can make a business out of this by selling these drugs to people with HIV and AIDS in the United States by smuggling them across the border. And this is sort of like a legal gray area at the start of the movie because they're technically not illegal drugs. They're unapproved by the Federal Drug Administration. So he gets involved with this. And obviously, like, doing this, he is having some, like, close interactions with members of the queer community. And he also has a, a hospital incident, I think this is actually earlier on a little bit, where he meets a transgender woman named Rayon. And Rayon also has AIDS. And the two of them end up essentially creating a business together called the Dallas Buyers Club, which is the name of the movie. Essentially, the, the premise of the club is they're not selling you drugs to get around legal regulation. They don't, they're not selling you drugs. They're 
selling memberships to the club in which membership grants you access to the drugs. Yeah. And so they do this, and a lot of the movie is from this point onward about... It's, it's, I think there's a couple of key themes. One of the key themes is about the sort of American government and drug industry's real slowness to do anything helpful for people who are dying of AIDS. Yep. And these sort of community initiatives have to step in. The government is not approving drugs, even though people are dying and people are saying like, well, what's the worst, you know, if, even if the drug is dangerous, I'm dying of this other thing, right? So... So that's one of the plot points. And the other plot point is Ron Woodruff develops this relationship with Rayon and eventually they become, you know, he, he comes to be more accepting of the queer community and, and of Rayon. He's not like a perfect ally, of course, but at least there's, there's a scene, you know, early on, he's, he's very, very hateful. Later on, he like forces one of his buddies, one of his homophobic buddies he sees in a grocery store to like shake hands with Rayon, right? Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff, and that's sort of symbolic. Eventually, at the end of the movie, Rayon passes away, which is a very sad moment in the movie, and Ron Woodruff loses a, a court battle to allow, I forget, is it to allow his business to continue? I believe, I believe so. Or something something like that, or, or to get drugs approved, or, or something about like his battle with the FDA. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, Sort of the movie ends up revealing that, you know, eventually, eventually he dies as well in the, in the early 90s, which sort of happens off screen after the movie. That's sort of the basic plot as I saw it. Is there anything you would add to that? No, I, I feel like that, that's, that's the gist of what, what happened in the movie. So obviously this movie is focused on the AIDS epidemic. That's really the central plot or the historical event that is the focus of the plot of the movie. I think the public perception in North America of the AIDS epidemic is that it's really a 1980s thing. I think most people see it as maybe starting in the early 80s and receding by, I think people have a sense that maybe it's by the late 80s or maybe like the early to mid 90s or something Mm -hmm. like that. Right. Is this perception fairly accurate or is this kind of a simplification of events it's definitely a simplification and i think that it becomes a simplification simplification for a few reasons i think the most important thing is that when when people kind of recognize that the aids epidemic is receding in that in that whatever point of the 90s that you identified there it's mostly because on some level in at least in the united states yes infection rates are lower people are having better life expectancies drug companies and healthcare experts have found out a cocktail of drugs that can help prolong, that can help prevent the onset of AIDS and can kind of keep you in that HIV zone. And so for that reason, it kind of becomes known, I guess, as the beginning of the end of the crisis or the end of the crisis or or what have you. But in reality, the crisis doesn't really end. I mean, in the United States today, Every year, almost 40,000 people are diagnosed with HIV. And those are just people who find out, never mind the people who are going, who have it and don't know, and, and all of those other, other circumstances that would increase that toll. 25 million people have died of AIDS since the early 1980s. And 
what we really saw with the AIDS crisis is that it just became a battlegrounds through which other axes of oppression, race, wealth inequality, those kinds of things, those communities became the most affected communities and the most debilitated by AIDS. And so does the AIDS crisis kind of slow down slash end for a middle class white gay crowd? Sure. But what about what about everyone else? And, and I think that becomes one of the key questions in periodizing the AIDS crisis. We still live with AIDS. It's very present. If you frequent any gay men's sexual health center, it's still at the, the forefront of community conversation, staying protected, all of that good stuff, to the point that now heterosexual people actually have higher rates of HIV in their communities than, than queer ones. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that's a, a part of why the epidemic is, is still with us, is because only, only certain populations were able to either gain the education needed to get ahead of HIV and slash or were were given the resources to do something about it when it was happening to their communities. And, and that didn't happen in an even and proportionate way. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I saw a news article actually from a month or two ago. I, I'm originally from Saskatchewan. And the news article was about how Saskatchewan in the past couple of years has had a huge spike in HIV cases. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the article in great detail, but I assume that has a lot to do with poverty, race, all those sorts of like sort of things. So so that makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly the AIDS epidemic is still with us, obviously. Yeah. One of the key facets of the movie is the government's response or lack thereof mm-hmm. to the AIDS epidemic. And the film suggests that the U.S. government, specifically the FDA, was very slow to approve new drugs as people were dying. It sort of had to go through these very rigorous processes of testing the drugs in its view, but members of the community were arguing, like, if people are going to die of this illness, then maybe in this scenario it makes sense to accelerate the approval process. Yeah. Is this pretty historically accurate? And if so... Why was it so hard to get the U.S. government to bypass this drawn-out approval process, given the circumstances? I think a, a part of, and maybe this is a bit of a misconception brought on by the movie. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a part of a more nuanced conversation. I guess we can figure that out together. But, you know, Ronald Reagan doesn't even say anything meaningful about AIDS until 1987. So how does the rest of the state... and that bureaucracy mobilized to help people it it doesn't when ronald reagan finally says in in a meaningful way aids and 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 does his presidential commission he only allocates i think it's something like seven tenths of the federal defense budgets worth of monies to combating aids and at that point over four thousand people have already died hospitals are really struggling to keep up with with the rising standards of care needed to take care of patients dying of HIV and AIDS in hospitals and and those and that need this treatment. And so the government really just does they just don't do a lot of anything. And when they do something, they do they do a lot of education for the training for hospitals, which oftentimes ends up being looking more like anti-bias training and saying you can't discriminate against these people for being gay. Never mind actually getting down to the the point of taking care of 
patients suffering from AIDS. Reagan, Reagan doesn't really do a whole lot, and, and not not a, a politician does. And so, the AIDS management strategy or policy or whatever you want to call it has been critiqued by activists, historians, and anyone really as just very uh, uninspired, uneven, misguided, decentralized. And so it really gets put on the backs of communities to kind of mobilize their own resources to take care of each other because the state doesn't really do it for them. Right. Yeah. That's unfortunately the answer I was kind of expecting. Yeah. So you you mentioned obviously the, the community response. Were buyers clubs like in this film a common response to government inaction or were there other sorts of grassroots initiatives that the community took up? Yeah, I, th- I think it's difficult to say how common they were. I mean, they do exist and they existed on in part you know, kind of a distributive justice type of politics that undergirded the entire operation of the running of buyers clubs. The first and largest buyers club in the United States was actually founded in 1986. So, you know, it it takes a few years for for people to mobilize in that specific kind of way. Hmm. But the buyers clubs, they they do exist, but there are still like hundreds of other ways that communities supported each other and that are arguably more important ways of supporting. There was a lot of, you know, protesting that was done by gay liberation activists to have the state pay attention and say, just say AIDS and never mind to even get AIDS renamed to AIDS from grits and and all of those kinds of really impactful and, and prevalent strategies of organizing. There are, were many members of queer community who stepped in and took up positions in in kind of like volunteer healthcare roles to help gay men in particular who were who were dying on mass from AIDS particularly lesbians actually one of the reasons that the acronym becomes LGBT instead of staying GLBT was it was to in part recognize lesbians contribution to the AIDS crisis while also recognizing that lesbian women did not have the supports and resources required to navigate the AIDS crisis because the AIDS crisis was so dependent on your financial, your financial situation, your likelihood of, of surviving and, and all of that good stuff. So yeah, there was a lot of other grassroots stuff done, a lot of protesting, a lot of mobilizing community healthcare infrastructure to help people get the drugs that they needed a lot of support groups like the ones that you saw in Dallas Buyers Club giving people a place to you know share their fears and hopes and to kind of struggle alongside other community members that that was a lot of what AIDS activism and organizing looked like I'm curious also to ask you about how like you may obviously the government was very inactive on the sort of regulation and medication side and just generally even acknowledging the crisis did the U.S. government pursue any other programs or policies around other sorts of health initiatives, like around safe sex, encouraging safe sex, or drug use, or that sort of thing? Or was it really just sort of like doing nothing? I mean, there became a point around the end of the 80s where, you know, they, they, they were saying that safe se- that you one could practice safe sex and suggested 
you know, safer practices around drug use, but were they re- were they out in the streets distributing condoms and safe needles and doing that kind of harm reduction work that would have been necessary to really slow the crisis? Not exactly. They were just kind of shouting from whatever federal building, wrap your willy, good luck, you know? And so access to those kinds of resources, again, that's where you see the AIDS crisis really start to separate race and class and gender in more stark ways because of lack of access to to condoms and to other contraceptives and other safe needles and things of that nature. Right. We also get a bit of that in the film where how much money you have dictates access to medication, which is obviously just, I mean, that would be true of the American, the traditional American medical (laughs) system as well. But even in the film, at least at the start of the film, somebody comes to the buyer's club with $50, which is, you know, the membership is like $400 a month, I think, in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Ron Woodruff, like, kicks him out, right? Later on in the movie, he's kinder to people who don't have the money for the medication. But yeah. but at least in the, the start of the movie, we can see that, like, if you don't have the money, mm-hmm. you don't get the access. And I think, um, like, to your question about buyer's clubs and if they existed and how they worked and what have you, they they did exist. And I think a, a part of the problem with centering this straight homophobic figure at the heart of the movie is that, you know, Ron Woodruff does turn that person away. And like you said, he does, he does reach heightened levels of tolerance on multiple axes throughout, throughout the film. But a part of the way that buyers clubs did actually work was because it, it was kind of, wrapped up in this ideology around distributive justice. I think that, for at least from my understanding, gay activists would have been less likely to turn people away who couldn't necessarily afford. There was a lot more uh, mutual aid-esque type of politics behind the operation, not not this totally staunch capitalist approach to the operation of a buyer's club. So I think that's where some of the grassroots organizing, mutual aid, and community care aspects are missing from the film. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely in the centering of someone who's not a part of the community doing that kind of work. The work looks different. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I I expected that it is is kind of odd to have a movie that is about the AIDS epidemic that centers a straight white guy (laughs) as the main character. Yeah, it, it is a bit odd, but it, it also, in a lot of ways, I suppose, makes a lot of sense culturally, because even if you look at the the kinds of information that was out there to the general pu- public during the AIDS crisis and the way that the federal government framed the response to the AIDS crisis, it was framed in a way that they didn't want the quote-unquote regular population infected. It was all about the preservation and the maintenance of a healthy heterosexual American citizenry that already existed. And so for Hollywood, however many years later, I guess by the time that they produced that, almost 40 years later, to make a film that ultimately centers that that through line of protecting the, you know, healthy American, white, heterosexual, and, and for all of the reason that Ron Woodruff's character in the movie is like, a typical American man. So to kind of, to center that actually makes some sense. Is it right? Do I wish that they did that? No. But am I surprised that they couldn't stretch their imagination any further? Absolutely not. 
we've been talking mainly about the U.S. government response. Some of your research focuses on cross-border support networks. How did the U.S. experience compare elsewhere? Say, for example, in Canada, but if you want to talk about anywhere else, feel free to bring that in as well. So, honestly, I there's a wealth of literature about the British, in particular, response to AIDS that I've never gone through much of a rabbit hole into because it's not my, my geography, my geographical frame in my work, and so I've kind of always just gone... Oh, all right. That they were doing some stuff, but from my from my understanding, the approach to AIDS in the UK does actually look quite similar. I can talk a little bit about Canada. HIV and AIDS, respectively, were first detected in Canada in around the same time that they would have found the first case of AIDS in the United States. I believe in Canada it was technically recorded in 1982, and actually. I do believe that patient zero in the American context was actually also Canadian. I could be totally lying and making that up, but I, I'm pretty sure that that was, that was the case. And so, you know, similarly to the United States, the response began with grassroots community organizing and doing some of the similar work that was being done in the United States, but at a point you know, the WHO starts doing global surveillance on AIDS. Eventually, in, I think, 1985, the Canadian Red Cross begins testing blood products for HIV. And so things like that make the case in Canada ever so slightly, maybe less damaging as it was to gay community in the United States. But, like, marginally. The, the AIDS epidemic destroyed gay communities globally regardless of, of kind of state response to the AIDS crisis. Right, so mostly a story of similarity than difference. For the most part, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit less about the, the medical response to the AIDS epidemic and more about queer culture. Yes, this is my bread and butter. Now we're in. <laughs> Obviously, the AIDS epidemic is a seminal moment in queer history, and so... This is probably too big a question for you to answer in its entirety, but if you want to maybe talk about a couple of key ways, what are some ways that the AIDS epidemic and the response to it changed queer culture and the queer community? Yeah, it, it changed queer culture and the queer community in so many ways, large and small. We, we could have just talked about that on the podcast, but I will give some yeah. maybe important and slash or fun and interesting, interesting ways. So I think one of the most important things is that prior to the AIDS crisis, the, the dominant gay liberationist stream of thinking and political positioning on the matter was that, you know, we're going to come out. Coming out is paramount. Being out and proud and not having the state in your business is like was the crux of the gay movement. And the AIDS crisis very quickly changed that political reality all of a sudden coming out was dangerous or, or was more dangerous again, dangerous in ways it had been prior in terms of finding employment and housing and things of that nature because of the stigma of AIDS. Coming out was no longer the top of the mandate. And all of a sudden activists wanted state interaction and wanted state support where in the, in the 70s they, they were staunchly opposed 
to state support. I, again, that's the general story. Were there always reformist gay ideologues? Absolutely. But that's when the kind of movement as a as a, the dominant strain of the movement shifts back towards the center and away from its radical roots through the AIDS crisis. It's also, like I already mentioned a little bit, where gay men and lesbians form a more coalitional politics than they had previously been able to, A, because gay men are their communities are immobilized by the AIDS crisis and they need support from, from lesbians. And lesbians do a lot of really important care work. Like I already mentioned, it is a part of the reason the acronym gets flipped around to acknowledge the contribution of lesbians to the AIDS crisis along acknowledging their invisibility in the community, their lack of access to certain resources that gay men have and those kinds of things. And yeah, AIDS changes everything. Most activists, most gay activists are living and dying of AIDS while they're doing their own work. They're uh, actively taking care of their friends and family through the crisis. This is where you really see the rise of the black ballroom scene that comes out of the Harlem ballroom scene in the 1960s. It really expands in in the 1980s. And the ballroom scene through the AIDS crisis becomes the one of the focal points for the black and brown gay community to thrive and survive, which is a whole separate conversation about, you know, different kinds of queer kinship structures that arise in black and brown communities and that are definitely accelerated and become even more important in the wake of the AIDS crisis to the point that eventually Madonna's voguing, right? So it, it really, the AIDS crisis brings so many aspects of gay culture to the forefront because the community is in such a vulnerable position and through their vulnerability they're also creating a lot of art you can look at ballroom you can look at keith herring who is now like a you know gay cultural icon in the art scene and whose whose art and dedication to hiv aids advocacy is kind of like what he is known for right and so it, it really becomes this push and pull tension of the communities dying and and finding new ways to survive in the wake of kind of the rubble left of the AIDS crisis. It's also what brings queer history to the academy. You get a bunch of activist historians who, in the wake of losing all of the queer elders and being totally decimated by the AIDS crisis, start to really identify how essential it is to have queer history recorded because they're confronted with how easy it is to lose it, right? And so the 80s and the AIDS crisis is the turning point on so many different aspects of queer community making and preservation that it's like, it, it would almost be impossible to pin down how important the AIDS crisis actually is. That leads nicely into my next question for you. So the the AIDS epidemic is obviously like the center point of the film. Mm -hmm. But if we were just focusing on the elements of the film that depict, you know, queer culture, queer identities, the film is set in the 1980s. How would those identities, culture, society look different if the film was set today versus in the 80s? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean... The film definitely plays into many of the stereotypes of the time 
in that and I think that this is a part of the movie for a reason, you know, this this queer community that looks really, really unclean, really unsightly, really, you know, all of the reasons that, that heterosexual people were so afraid of the gay community and AIDS are really kind of brought to the forefront, I think, in this movie. And I, I'm not so bothered, I suppose, by by that, because I do think it, it serves that purpose in the film. Do I think it's right? Do I think that it should, be de- should have been depicted maybe a little bit differently? Yes, but there's also something there to be said that you, you really do get a sense of the level of precarity faced by members of the community at the time. I don't think that the film does a good job of proportionately representing those actually most affected by the AIDS crisis. This is like a very... I mean, queer community in the United States especially has always been really regional and looks very different wherever you are. And so this film depicts a very specific version of queer community that probably did exist in that way in Texas. But if you wanted to look at the AIDS crisis or the queer community in New York City or in San Francisco, you you would be watching a completely different film. Mm. But I don't think that that's necessarily inaccurate of the movie that's just how that's just how queer community has been and is Mm. in terms of the depiction of like differently gendered people yeah trans people have always been around in the 1980s especially male to female transsexuals were definitely identifying themselves as such and facing similar barriers to rayon's character in in the film again i think one of the the problems from this movie comes in not necessarily Rayon's I mean Rayon's character should probably shouldn't be the the kind of church light in the distance guiding Ron Woodruff to being not a bad person you know that there's definitely room for some more complexity in in that character also that a straight white dude was was playing Rayon has become one of the the more controversial issues around Rayon's character, not necessarily what Rayon actually does in the movie. And so I think that, that those are where those kind of conversations about representation really rub up against this film, maybe more so than conversations about the actual depictions of queerness in the movie. Okay. I do want to talk about Rayon. So this leads well into some of my questions about Rayon. So you mentioned that Jared Leto's portrayal of a transgender woman has been controversial both for representation and like, you know, why, why not hire an actor from that community, right? But also I saw some discourse online arguing that Rayon more so represents like a stereotype of what straight people think trans women are like rather than sort of an authentic depiction of a trans character. What did you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's there's some there could be some truth to that. I I I wish I knew what I thought straight people thought transgender women actually looked like. You know, I I think like uh, reading those critiques online, because I also did see all of the ways that Rayon's character does really embody a lot of the trans women that I know and that. Like, they're very caring. They often do take on, like, quite maternal figures in queer community. They are often, because of their precariousness, the most resourceful community members. So even in thinking about those depictions of of Rayon as problematic or maybe not quite 
fully realized. Are they fair critiques? But there's also a lot of really positive representation happening with Rayon's character. I I am of the personal opinion that more of the problem lies in in Jared Leto's portrayal of Rayon because th- that's what makes it feel like more of a stereotype and a caricature than an authentic portrayal of a trans woman. I imagine that if a trans woman played the character, those positive aspects of her of her character's arc would would be more prevalent. It would be easier to to recognize, but because it's Jared Leto doing like an, a weirdly high pitched voice and wearing like way too much rouge, you're kind of like this feels wrong. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That's fair. Another question I have for you about Rayon, or thing we can discuss about Rayon, is the fact that so everyone in the film refers to Rayon with he him pronouns. Mm-hmm. Rayon never actually introduces their own pronouns. So we never get to see what Rayon thinks of Rayon's own pronouns. Mm-hmm. But so this even applied to characters that were somewhat more accepting of Rayon's gender identity, right? Dr. Eve Sachs, who I didn't mention in the like description at the top, but this is a, a doctor who I think was also like Rayon's childhood friend. Yeah. Sort of implied. And, and so they have like a positive relationship. Anyway, so I was trying to understand what to make of this with Rayon and the he, him pronouns. Mm-hmm. Do you think the writers or the director were trying to show that, you know, f- few straight people in the 1980s would have accepted that a trans woman was a woman? Or do you think that there's something more complex about Rayon's gender identity that's happening here? Essentially, like, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's actually, maybe it could be both. On one hand, yeah, it would have, it would have been a really big ask to have a trans person's identity be respected in full by straight the straight society around them. That would have even been true in certain gay circles. You know, trans people have always been at the margins even of their own community. And so I think that's certainly a part of it. But also gender diverse and gender expansive people have always been around and they, they came before as well. The the kind of, you know, binary trans experience that went on to mark the post-war period through until the proliferation of non-binary as an identity. If you look at, you know, the United States in the late 1800s or prior to the Second World War even, and you look at certain gendered, different kinds of gendered people, you can see that they're maybe trans in some way, or we can read them as trans, but we couldn't necessarily neatly put them into the category of a trans woman or a trans man. They're, They're doing something trans, but not necessarily that, right? And so is there a possibility that Rayon's character was more gender expansive than simply a trans woman? It's it's possible. Rayon's character, though, probably would have had that language of being a transsexual woman to articulate those feelings of transness. But it doesn't necessarily mean that she, if she were a real person, were was really invested in womanhood in a serious way. A lot of trans people aren't invested in manhood and womanhood in in really serious ways. That misconception comes in, I think, more around, you know, burdens of proof required in medical practice to initiate gender-affirming care often required people to fit their trans experiences into certain models that communicated to 
often cishet white dudes administering this kind of health care that, yes, I am the kind of trans you need me to be to access this care, right? And so it's highly possible that, that Rayon's character is, is it doing something other than being than identifying as a woman while still being trans. I can't remember in, if she says herself in the movie, if she even self-identifies as a woman. No, I don't, I, no, I don't, I can't remember that happening specifically. Yeah, so she could be a lot of things. She could also be like the most effeminate gay man that still identifies as a man, you know? I think a lot of people really decided that she was going to be particularly a transsexual woman and that that likely is what what the language that would have been available to her and how she would have identified but doesn't mean that she that a person like her in the real world would have had a real investment in womanhood in the way that I think some people want Rayon's character to to be invested right that makes sense that answer is very helpful yeah it's also difficult because you know Pronouns have been kind of the battleground for trans in inclusion and exclusion in our contemporary moment. But mm -hmm. trans people of a different time and place didn't have the energy or time to care about pronouns. They had way larger fish to fry. And pronouns kind of increasingly became one of the hot button issues. And that definitely happens after the 1980s. So when does pronouns become a hot button issue, do you think? I mean, in a sense, they have been because being properly gendered via pronouns is an important way for pe that people can validate your gendered experience in the world. And so people have always requested that their pronouns change if they transition. Mm -hmm. But pronouns as a really hot trans issue, I would, I, I would like to, off the top of my head, attribute it to the age of the internet. Mm. That's where, where people start, you know, trans discourses really were able to proliferate and take off in an internet age in ways that they just were not possible prior to the internet. On top of the fact that the community was quite young prior to the internet, but like, yeah, I could totally blame the Tumblr, the Tumblr kids for, for the pronoun, for pronoun pins and pronoun discourse. Not that it's not important, it absolutely is, but the attention to pronouns or say the attention to bathrooms are, are kind of a big part of our contemporary moment. And, and they're just not such large questions for trans communities of the 80s. Right. And that makes sense, given sort of my uh, experience on the internet. I mean, I'm you know not a queer person, but I, I feel like that's when I started seeing the sorts of topics like Arise, right? So yeah. You mentioned this a little bit already about how straight people during the AIDS epidemic became very like uncomfortable or afraid of queer people. And I wanted to ask you about how the AIDS epidemic affected relationships between straight people and queer people, how straight people perceived the queer community. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously one of the key story arcs in the film is Ron Woodruff coming to somewhat respect and care for queer people, but he has this very unique story of himself having AIDS, right? Yeah. There, that's not true for a lot of people. So so how does the AIDS epidemic affect this relationship in general? Yeah, I mean, pri prior to the AIDS epidemic, the relationship between the straight world and the queer world was, was never harmonious. AIDS just kind of became another and, and one of the more 
powerful reasons to be homophobic on top of white supremacy, Judeo-Christianity, all of that other good stuff that, or it was already alienating queer people from, from the straight world. Now, you know, a lot of straight people felt empowered enough to be able to point the finger at queer communities and say that their immoral actions were... Or, or that AIDS was a result of their immoral actions. And that's just, you know, that's just what God gives you when you do bad stuff. He gives you AIDS, right? And so that becomes kind of a, a focal point for homophobia in the 1980s and 1990s and even even until today, but particularly during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And so for a lot of people who are becoming estranged from their families and from the straight world in this time are doing it in with the AIDS crisis as a backdrop. You, I've heard a lot of oral history interviews from former activists and stuff and saying that, you know, the AIDS crisis was kind of one of the reasons they got the boot from their parents' home. One of the last thing that their parents would say, said to them was, you know, you're, you're gay and you're gonna die of AIDS. And I don't, I don't wanna see that happen. You know, I, I don't support your lifestyle, your disease lifestyle, those kinds of things. And so, you know, queer communities had already been pathologized as mentally ill, and now they're also physically ill, and they're also disabled. And that, that just adds another level of problematic discourse to, to the straight table, so to speak. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I think so, yeah. That's really awful. Tying that back into one of my earlier questions, then, you mentioned that there's some sort of particularly a Christian interpretation of AIDS as like punishment for a sinful lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Is that part of the explanation for why the government doesn't do much? Is it, is it essentially like, especially because during the eighties in places like the UK, the United States in Canada, we have very conservative governments. Is it that those governments have very religious views that are very bigoted towards the queer community and that influences like oh, we're just we don't really care is that their their view yeah i mean i i would say that that's the view that seems to be the dominant yeah. view amongst activists who have also told their histories of the time it's the the government negligence was a hundred percent it was intentional it, it was you know you you have to think to the movement of of queer people from the psych institution to the hospital dying of AIDS really happens in a short amount of time. There, there's, there's only a very short moment of heightened acceptability that's, that seems like maybe there, we're on some track towards quote unquote linear progress that the AIDS crisis totally sweeps away. And so the, I think the AIDS crisis just becomes an, a new arena for the government to kind of disavow queer people living in their nation states just kind of makes homophobia just tastes a little different after the AIDS crisis, I guess is kind of the best way to frame it. But yeah, no, it was just a government inaction because it was, it was a disease that seemed to afflict poor people and drug users and black people and gay people. And so that from a from I think a white supremacist colonial state crafting perspective is like all of the undesirables lumped into one doesn't sound like we have to do much about this if anything this might be this might be really convenient for our political project right that's 
really sad, but not very yeah, surprising. not surprising. Is there anything else about the movie that you wanted to bring up or, or chat about that we haven't talked about already? The only thing that I would say, and this seems to be a sticking point for queer scholars who do AIDS-specific research and focus with the movie, is that, you know, a, a huge cornerstone of the movie is that AZT is making Ron really sick, it's making people around him really sick, and they want access to other drugs, one of them mainly becoming peptide T, I think is what it's called. Yeah, AZT in the movie is... For anyone who hasn't seen, AZT is like the one that you can get in the United States. Yeah, and so, but it very much paints this this picture of AZT as ineffective and really toxic and as if Ron has the right idea about what kind of cocktail of drugs he needs. AZT is one of three, I think it's three drugs that they, they still use to combat HIV AIDS internally. It's actually very effective. In the beginning, they they were using it in, in too high of doses, and that was some of why people were getting sick. But it was, at the time, actually the most effective treatment on the market. And peptide T actually was useless and, and is not used in any aspect of, of AIDS-related healthcare and HIV-related health care, as, as far as I'm aware. And so I think, if anything, you know, this, this movie brings this really interesting balance of, like, healthcare skepticism and big pharma skepticism that I think is like very necessary, but also maybe teeters onto another side that in the age of COVID, I'm, I'm just hesitant to embrace the kind of anti-regulation, anti-establishment, anti, you know, XYZ approach to public health that, that, that maybe, maybe we should like take us another look at that movie and, and think about the story depicted there a little bit more seriously. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. I I will say watching this movie now, I mean, I, I didn't, this is the first time I've watched it. I didn't watch it before COVID, but I presume that watching it during COVID is quite different than pre-COVID watching it. You know, I, I watched it with my girlfriend and there's this scene where, there's this scene where Ron finds out that the doctor has, I don't remember, the doctor has either put him on AZT or someone else, maybe Rayon on AZT or something, and he sort of interrupts what the doctor is doing. He's like giving a presentation to some children, and he accuses him of being a murderer and all of this stuff, yeah. right? And I'm like, this is this is kind of a weird scene to watch during the pandemic. Yeah, it's also like it's it's interesting again in the centering of a straight white man, the idea behind mistrusting the government and mistrusting the people caring for you ha holds a different kind of weight yes where where if it was a queer protagonist saying it you would understand it more in that you'd be like yes that these different services have never served you you you've always been at the margins you've always been in the you know from a, like a biopolitics perspective the the kind of right to let die camp of human existence in in this country and so your skepticism of big pharma of the government totally warranted but when you put you know like this white this cishet white guy at the center and he's the one making all of these big claims about the ethics of the medical care it, it kind of just takes on a different flavor that in the covid era I think has a a particularly different kind of taste that maybe makes you go, oh, this this kind of looks like something we we know about. 
and I don't 100%. like it. 100%. Ron Woodruff seems like a character who would be part of the Freedom Convoy. Yeah, right? he, totally, he totally would have been at Queen's Park in, in January or whenever it was that all of that mess was going on. Yeah. It, yeah, so it, you watch it and you're kind of like, this movie could have been way better if you just didn't make it about this guy, you know? Yeah. Chose the wrong yeah. guy to, to tell this story. Yeah, I will say early on, I think in the first scene when we were watching, I said to my girlfriend, I was like, this guy looks like Dale Gribble from <laughs> King of the Hill. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, yeah. There are, like, a few absurdities in the movie, you know? He's looking at the microfilm and sees that you can contract HIV from unprotected sex and all of a sudden is has this, like, very vivid memory of the one time he had unprotected sex with a woman who was clearly a drug user and he, like you know, looks up and he has this moment and you're just kind of like, okay, I think that's not how it works. And and that's a part of the story of the AIDS epidemic is that like traceability was like a really difficult aspect of navigating the crisis. And all of a sudden in a library, this dude just does it all on his own. His whole contact tracing is just like, oh, that was the time. (laughs) And you're just kind of like, oh, come on, you know? Yeah, that yeah. was silly. Yeah. I think for the purposes of the film, the scene is intended to show that he has, like, accepted that he has it because yeah. before that, he doesn't believe the doctors. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting. It, it's an interesting film. It's one of those ones that, you know, will always... Ha- it'll always be controversial, and it'll always be at the forefront of conversations about representation, queer representation in film because it did so well, I think. One of them won an Oscar, right? It won three Oscars, and I think it was nominated for six of them. Wow. So, yeah. So that'll that'll do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of a historian, what was your favorite thing about the film's depiction of history? And also, if you could change one thing about the film, what would that be and why? Uh, my favorite thing about the depiction of history is I do think that it does a pretty good job of showing the government in action and the the slowness of the process of even trying to mobilize towards a solution to the AIDS crisis. I think I think it does that fairly well. What I don't think it does well and something that I would would change is that it it does make it look like the a lot of the solutions to the AIDS crisis can be attributed and, you know, praise, we can ultimately praise a bunch of, like, cishet white people for solving the problems. All of the heroes of the movie are, like, straight white characters. Even the doctor, the the good doctor, she's just, you know, a straight white lady. Ron starts the Buyers Club, obviously in partnership with Rayon, but ultimately is a straight white dude. I think from a historical accuracy's perspective, it was queer people leading their own communities through the AIDS crisis and coming up with the most innovative solutions to handling the crisis. And that is totally missed in the film. And instead, we can just thank Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Gardner for being nice people in the end is, is really like what we, we get out of it. And so that from that perspective, it, it's a bit of a dissatisfying watch for sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Ron Woodruff is more of an exception than the norm, but if you make a movie about the exception and not the norm, 
some people may come to assume that that exception was the norm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it, it's also just, you know, for, for every Juan, Ron Woodruff who, who did, you know, reach some increased level of tolerance, there were also millions of straight people who contracted AIDS and never got that far and died in the steeping in their own bigotry, mm. you know? So, I don't know. Something's lost in, in centering the characters that they chose to center. Yeah. For historical accuracy's sake, which is, you know, what we're here to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's also some implication that, like, to some degree, capitalism saves the day, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Where the, the government is not allowing people to access medical care properly, and so, yes. you know, Ron Woodruff, entrepreneur, <laughs> puts the free market to work, and the free market saves people mostly i mean he eventually like he's a little bit kinder about you know if you don't have a lot of money i'll still help you out at yeah. the end of the movie but mostly he's like a cutthroat businessman yeah yeah i i think that's like one of the the big pitfalls of the movie is that the aids crisis is not navigated through queer people's you know allegiance to capitalism so to kind of paint the buyer's club in the way that he's running the buyer's club as the solution that kind of like brings the community some reprieve is kind of just funny, but yeah, it's not good. It's really not. You're like, okay, that's, that's not really how that worked, but that's fine. You know? Right. Can I ask, did you like the movie? Do you like this movie? No, I don't. I don't, okay. I don't like this movie. I mean, there's just like, it's really sad movie i know you know what i can't even say that that's the reason i don't like it because i like a lot of sad movies it's just not a not they're not necessarily helpful and generative depictions of of queerness of the aids crisis of several issues intersecting with with those two overarching topics politically i don't align with like anything that occurs in the movie like you said the, the kind of capitalism saves the day narrative is like a bit of a snooze mm. and the total opposite of the way that I think about similar issues in my own work. So it was kind of like, I think this movie is a little bit of my villain origin story <laughs> uh, as like a scholar and as a human. And right. and so, no, I, ha I hate this movie. I hate it. it, okay. it is that, yeah, it's not a good movie. <laughs> That's fair. Fair enough. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me for an hour about a movie you hate. Yeah, no, I pre I mean, listen, like, it, it's, it can be really easy to talk about the things that you don't like and that you see immediate problems in. That's true. I, I did try to be fair. I did try to not just be like, this movie sucks. <laughs> Nobody should ever watch it. I do, I do think there's, regardless of, of the issues I take with it, there is still the opportunity for some kind of education and I guess that's a win. Maybe maybe we can hang on to that, and it's not so bad. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Do you have any projects you're working on or social media pages that listeners can check you out at? Yeah, I'll, I'll do all the plugs. My Instagram and Twitter are at Elio Colavito. I'm trying to do some academic Twittering. Oh, no. I'm not very good at it, so don't expect much of you go to follow me. I just retweet things. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm working on the Pussy Palace Oral History Project with the LGBTQ Oral History Digital Collaboratory and the Archives with a Q. 
over at the LGBTQ Oral History Digital Collaboratory. I also am the editor and occasional author of the Traversing Temporalities blog series, where I talk about queer and trans oral history, meaning making in the present. And yeah, those, those that's kind of the gist of what, I, what I've been up to. That's all I have to plug. Very cool. What, what is the um, Pussy Palace project? So it's an oral history project being done through the collab in the archives where we're collecting, we collected 38, I believe it was in the end, oral history interviews about the Pussy Palace bathhouse raid by Toronto police in 2001, when the Toronto police raided an all women's and trans bathhouse party space. It was kind of treated by the courts as an illegal strip search and therefore became kind of Canada's last major bathhouse raid in its history. And and it, it's a, a pretty hot and interesting moment in Toronto's lesbian scene and, and trans scene. And so mm-hmm. we talked to a bunch of people about the raid, what the Pussy Palace was, what it meant, what it did for people at the time. It, there's a lot of really interesting media creation out there on the site if you want to go check it out. We have audiograms and some other videos and things like that where we've done a lot of public outcomes with with the interview stuff. So go check it out. Yeah, people should definitely go check it out. This sounds like a really great project. Yes, it's cool. it's cool stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I When I got the email that I was invited on the pod, I was like, I've made it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not it's not that impressive. <laughs> I've made it. I'm on the pod. This is the department pod. I know it's not department affiliated pod, but like, you know what I mean? Uh it's the department pod, so I I was like, you know what? If this is where I stop, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy with that. It's very kind of you. Very very kind. Yeah. Anyways, love the pod. I'm I'm glad to be on it. Oh, thank you very much. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Elio for chatting with me. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I've included a couple of reading recommendations in the show's description. And if you'd like to see some historical images related to our conversation today, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you share it with someone you think would be interested. For a podcast of this size, personal recommendations make a huge difference for growing the audience. If you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcast page, that's also a big help. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics. And if you're a historian who's interested in being a guest on a future episode, drop me a line. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off Campus History. (laughs) ¶¶